Elk Shape Podcast, episode 59, with me, Dan the Fitness Man. Thanks for listening. Love your guys' support. Today, I wanted to talk about mountain lions. I actually went on my first ever, maybe my last mountain lion hunt a couple weeks ago. It's something that's been on my radar for several years. I've been saving on the side because I knew I was going to have to hire an outfitter or just get really lucky over in Washington on an incidental. I went to Idaho, hired an outfitter. I'm going to explain how I made it happen for myself, what I did to accomplish that hunt because I'm not a guy that can just go out and book a mountain lion hunt every year. This has been on my radar for several years and I wanted to do my part and help manage the predators and the cat densities are super high especially in North Idaho so I'm going to bring on the guy that I hired and kind of interview him the reason why I bring him on also is because he knows a lot about bear hunting spring bears coming up around the corner he also guides elk so we're going to get into some elk hunting tactics he calls for all his clients and kills lots of bulls every year so he's got a wealth of knowledge he's a pretty young guy he can definitely hike the mountains as you're going to find out he kicked my ass on the hills and it's just a really cool episode so a little different but i really like it it's very engaging and i hope you enjoy learning some of the biology on these animals that we're going to talk about as far as elk shape business goes guys just want to let you know i got a bunch of new swag in the elk shape store please check it out i love some of the stuff that we got there from the hats and shirts so you can check that out on elkshape.com check out free workouts as well go to the youtube channel watch any workout or hunting related content we're on instagram at elk shape we're on uh, facebook as well and the elk shape camp is coming up like in a couple of days. I'm super pumped about that. We're going to do Elk Shape Camp number two. That's going to be early summer or late spring, and I'm going to double the amount of people that can go so I can just do one last camp and touch a lot of athletes and get them ready for the best elk hunting season of their life, 2019. I hope you're drawing some great tags. I hope you're working out. I hope you're meal planning, prepping, and making sure your nutrition's dialed. I hope you're doing delayed gratification when it comes to your life, not only finances, but with your family. And I hope you use elk hunting as a launch pad to make yourself the best version of yourself. Here is Corey Jacobson on his special offer for Elk Shape listeners. Here's Corey. Hey, Elk Hunters. Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. Thanks, Corey, for that. As always, our other sponsors get a quick shout out, discipline, hard work, delayed gratification, and accountability for our actions. Thank you, sponsors. Without further ado, here is episode 59 with Mike from Longtail Outfitters. Elk Shape Podcast. 
me, Dan, the fitness man. Today, I am hanging out with Mike from Longtail Outfitters. What's up, brother? Oh, not much. Just beautiful day today here in northern Idaho. Yeah, you guys got dumped on uh, like us over here? Yeah, we got probably here at the house. We probably got two feet within 24 hours. I know, man. I've spent at least 10 hours behind a snowplow or a snowblower between my house and my gym. It's been crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been it's been crazy. That's for sure. We haven't had this much snow all winter. We got it all within you know a few hours. It's pretty pretty nuts. It's been pretty uh, warm winter this year. We're gonna get you on today to talk about all things cougar hunting, some spring bear hunting, some elk hunting. We're gonna get to know you, your story, the background. So for those listening, I killed a cougar, my first and only probably cougar last week with Mike and it was epic it's a there it was a dream come true for me i've been wanting to do that that was a bucket list hunt and it finally happened i'll go into how that kind of played out here but let's kind of first learn about you mike man you're you're a young whipping whippersnapper you're like what 25 and uh really hard to keep up with i will say in the mountains which i never have to say uh <laughs> you you did man you kicked my butt you were faster than me well, you didn't have a pack on. I'm just going to say that. That's my excuse. But no, seriously, you, you moved well in the mountains, and uh, it was cool. But you're 25. Give us your story, man. How did you get into outfitting? How long have you been doing it? And, and kind of what's your operation like? Yeah, so when I was uh, straight out of high school, I graduated high school, and um, I went over to Montana and worked for an outfitter um, in the Swan Valley, which is about an hour south of uh, Kalispell. And... Um, there I worked in a, kind of a backcountry setting there. Uh, it was all horseback and um, setting there. We packed into the Bob Marshall Wilderness where we did um, elk hunts and um, bear hunts. And I did, uh, seeing I had my own dogs and stuff, I actually did some cat hunts for that guy there. Um, but mainly that outfitter there, we mainly did, um, like I say, elk and bear and uh, deer, both whitetail and mule deer. But that was definitely, it's, it's a little bit different than we are here um, and we have some pretty, you know, rugged country in this, this part, but when I was working over there, um, I mean, we were, um, 14 miles in from the trailhead to where we'd actually have our camps and then we'd pack in from there. Um, but, um, I got this opportunity over here in Idaho, actually from a mutual friend. Um, I cat hunted with a guy, an old, old gentleman over in the Swan and, um, his son owned this outfitting business here which was uh, Buckshot Outfitters, and that was three years ago. He went up for sale, so I went over and met with him and um, hit it off from there and ended up getting a, a guy that uh, was interested. He was a big hunter and stuff, and he's actually from um, back in Tennessee. Kind of pitched the deal to him, and uh, he ended up uh, fronting the money, and we ended up purchasing this business here and uh, been doing it for three years. Really, I've been a- actually operating for two years um so it hasn't been real long yet we don't have a lot of guys you know coming in but we try to keep it a real small scale type deal um i do all the all the guiding um right right at the time um we probably will get some more guides here in the future but just learning the area real well and wanting to provide a really quality hunt so before we get too big into it got to make sure we got got everything uh situated but this next year we're hoping to be booked completely up and from now on in the future be booked completely up I have questions, man. You said Bob Marshall. I haven't been in there yet, but there's uh-huh. like there's folklore, there's story, there's nostalgia. Like it's magical. 
it just it sounds like some sexy backcountry, man. So what is that country like? Tell us a little bit about it and your experience in the Bob. Well, where we came in from, there's two, two, there's well, there's three different, there's basically three different directions to come into the Bob. You have the east side, you have the west side, and you have the north side to come in into the Bob. The east side, that's real, that's where most people come in from. There's a lot of outfitters that come in from that direction. That's more of a highway coming in from that way. We actually come in from the west side, which is a lot more rugged um, by a lot. It's 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 crazy trails getting in there, um, but we had some real good stock and stuff, so we get in there. And our camp was actually situated on national forest land, right on the outside of the Bob Marshall. So then we'd ride into the Bob Marshall during uh, the daytime um, to hunt. Our permit there didn't allow us to do overnights, which was all right because we had quite a few different access points. And what's kind of nice, the thing about the Bob is, is for, for rifle hunters, it opens September 15th to rifle hunting. So right prime time, the elk start getting kicked off during the rut. You know, we'd be in there hunting with rifles. Um, so it provided a real high opportunity type deal where it's, it's hard to, you know, find a, a good rifle hunt during the rut in places. Well, there, that's, you know, what we, what we did. But there's guys, we did combo hunts where we do archery hunting, um, rifle hunting combo. Um, so we'd... Um, out of the Bob Marshall, there's a lot of elk that kind of on the, the fringe there. So if they were out of the Bob Marshall, we found, you know, you know, a couple bulls bugling down on a draw, you know, that was out of the Bob Marshall, we'd go chase them with the bows. And then if, uh, you know, we had some elk bugling on the other side, because uh, it's kind of a divide there where we were hunt, we'd hunt the divide. And if we, wherever we get a bull bugle in the morning, we either go after them with the rifle if they're in the Bob Marshall, and if they're on the National Forest side, we go after the bows. But it was kind of a unique deal there. Is it still um, like that today? Yes, it is. Wow, it is. that's cool for yeah. elk hunters out there. Hey, if you're if you got the balls to do it now, if somebody's coming out, like maybe they're not a woodsman quite yet. I mean, obviously, it's not this Bob Marshall is no joke. You heard it here first. Like I've never been there, but I just know it's no joke. Is that something doable for say somebody you know pretty savvy in the backcountry to go do on their own? Um, I mean, it's tough. You'd have to be you have to be good with horses and stuff like that. It's not something where you're going to hike back in there because. I mean, you could probably get back in there and hike, but you got to remember you're shooting an elk. You got to get it out too. So, and if you're doing it in September, it's pretty warm. It'd, it'd be tough to do it without stock. But there's places, there's different outfitters that could do drop camps. So if you wanted to kind of do it on your own, basically, um, an outfitter could pack you out, pack you back in there, and then do a drop camp. That's and cool. And then you could, you could you could hunt from there, which a lot a lot of guys like that. A lot of guys that you know know how to elk hunt and and that sort of thing. You know. But another thing you have to be, you know, cautious about in there is um, grizzly bears. Um, we had lots of encounters with grizzly bears in there. I mean, even so, hunting-wise, um, we'd tell clients if they, you know, we'd never want them to shoot more than once for, you know, with a rifle. We don't want them to shoot more than once because after two, three shots, those bears were keyed in right where you were at. And within within an hour, you'd have grizzly bears on top of you in there. Um, no as far kidding. As goes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so you got to be careful, you know. We, we see somebody make a good shot, you know. It's like, oh, it's good, just let them die, you know. But you know, some guys they want to keep shooting till they're down. We didn't do that there because the grizzly bears would claim claim it, and you, you couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I've been, you know, hunting around there. That's kind of the reason I like come over here hunting this area because we do have grizzlies bears, but not like there. It's uh, had too many close encounters. It almost makes it not fun in some of those spots with the grizzlies. Too many close encounters for me, I guess, you know. But um, have you been yeah, he, keeping up with all the grizzly encounters these last few years? Like uh, a buddy of mine, Bob Lagasa, he actually got – he was the guy from Spokane who got attacked by a sow just this fall. Mm-hmm. He got beat up mm-hmm. pretty good. He was in the hospital over in Bozeman for quite a while. It was right out of Livingston. And then 
another outfitter actually got killed in Wyoming just this last season, and he had a family, which is just heartbreaking. And it's just, yep. I mean, I'm ready for those things to get tags on them, man, and and help keep those numbers in check. Did you have any crazy close calls? Uh, yeah, I had one once. It was actually in uh, November. I was out. I um, had some clients set up on a um, kind of this. We were mule deer hunting. I had them set up on a, a big rock slide, kind of open face coming across. And I was going to go around kind of the backside, and I was going to glass another spot, see if there's any deer bedded. And I was I was by myself. I always carry. Um, I always had my my 44 with me, my pistol. And I was hiking around, and before I knew it, I I walked right up on a kill. I don't know. I don't even. I never. I don't even see what it was. I'm guessing it was an elk or a deer or something there. But about the time I saw the blood and so because it was fresh snow, it was super fresh. It was snow at the time, so you couldn't see tracks around the area. They would have had to have been, you know, a few hours old if they were. Well, he was laying right on it, basically, and I walked right up on him. He charged me. It was a big boar, uh, but he stopped. He, he got, I don't know, probably about 10 yards. He wouldn't come any closer than 10 yards, but I pulled my gun on him, and I was, I mean, I could have shot him, but I could tell he wasn't going to, you know, full charge on it. So I just walked backwards real slow in my steps, um, walked backwards, just kind of talking to him. And he followed me probably for a good, I don't know, probably 100 yards, just staying, you know, 10, 15 yards from me, just kept popping his lips and oh. you know, huffing at me and everything. <laughs> but I, he finally, once I got kind of a little draw, I got down the bottom, starting up the other side, he just stayed at the bottom, the little draw there. And well, I just kept walking backwards, walking backwards, and he stayed right there until he was out of sight, and I turned around and got the hell out of there. But, yeah, that was that was a pretty uh, close experience there. and Too close, I guess, you know, but. Oh, no, thank those you. Bears, oh. You, you, got, you got to be careful, though, because if, if I were to shoot that bear, I could have been in big trouble. It's one of those things where it's it, it's crazy. It's almost you've committed murder, basically, on something if you if you do have to take a bear like that. They have to basically, you better be chewed on. Um when they show up to you know see what happened you could be in big trouble so that that's kind of where the law needs to change a little bit but yeah i don't know i think i think it'll change here in the next few years there's enough people getting injured and stuff um, yeah yeah and that's what it's going to take it needs to change yeah totally agree so how did you get how did you become a houndsman i mean like did you just grow up with walker hounds or like how did you actually become a true houndsman which you obviously are i experienced it how that happened um, so I, I always, I got my, my own dogs when I was 16. Uh, my dad had dogs and then uh, a good friend of my dad's had dogs who was a huge houndsman. And that's who I got all my dogs from now, basically the bloodline. Being a houndsman, it's not, there's a lot more into it than a lot of people think, you know, there's just having your own dog. You know, there's, there's some guys out there that'll buy dogs and they really, really do it well and, you know, really be proud of what you have. Uh, like all the dogs um, we have now, except for one dog, which I got just for breeding wise, um, are all dogs that I've raised either, you know, either from gotten from this other guy, um, from pups or pups that, you know, out of dogs that I have now and have raised. So it, there's a lot when you, when you have a raise a dog from a pup and, you know, bring them up and train them to hunt and everything and they start doing well and you know, they take their first track or they make their first tree and then they start treeing for the first time. It's just, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, killing something. It's just about watching the dogs work, you know. Um, I mean, killing is is part of it. But for, for, you know, me, I've probably treed, I don't even know how many lions, you know, and I've only shot one. Um, and it was just because, you know, just one of those things that Big Tom, you know, 
but it's all about the dogs. So I, you know, I normally, if I'm just out hunting by myself, I just take pictures. You know, that's what I shoot them with is the camera. Because for us, you know, especially females or anything like that, I mean, I'll run a same female probably runner, you know, 10, 12 times during the, during a winter, you know, training dogs on them. So that, that's kind of how we do that. You know, if we shot every cat, then we wouldn't have any cats to run. Um, yeah, I like that about you because quite honestly, there's a lot of outfitters in Idaho specifically. I'm calling you guys out. You You kill anything. And I just think that you were... I was really impressed at your management practices, and I think that's good for the long run. And I just don't think females should be killed in that scenario for mo- for the most part, uh, unless they're diseased or injured or something, ma'am. That's that's your breeding stock. But as far as when did you get your dogs and go, man, these are my dogs. I want to use my dogs and run them for this other outfitter. When did that happen? Um, well, I already had my dogs then when I moved over to there, you know. And it was just one of those things where, you know, I, I, in the wintertime, I was basically, I did some snowmobile tours and that sort of thing for him. But I basically took winters off and I'd just run cats, you know, and I'd, I could supplement it with, with bobcat hides. Bobcat hides out west are worth some money. Um, so I could back, basically actually make a living off my dogs just running bobcats and um, shooting bobcats and selling them at um, fur auctions is how I made money in the wintertime doing that sort of thing. And this outfitter, you know, he had had, he'd had a houndsman that kept, you know, coming and running for him, but he was real unru- unreliable and everything. So I was like, hey, I'll, you know, I'll run some cats for you, you know. And he always gives me a call, want, you know, he's got a hunter coming in. He wants me to come do it. I was like, hey, you know, I got my own thing going, so I can't do that anymore. Um, right. You know, yeah, you know, that's definitely, for me, running my dogs is, you know, definitely the favorite thing out of anything to do. It's, it's just kind of a passion, you know, it's a, it's what I live to do. And somehow, and that, that's kind of how you have to kind of look at outfitters. If you are, if you don't want to book with us and you book with somebody else, um, one thing to ask an outfitter is, do you own your own dogs? If an outfitter says, no, I got guys that come in and run that are real good. That's probably not a guy to go with. Um, uh, cause he's not passionate about cat hunting. If you're going to go out and go with an outfitter, you want to make sure he's passionate about cat hunting and he owns his own dogs and that whole thing. Um, so that's kind of, kind of a tip if you are looking for you know booking a booking a cat hunt well um, it's something to ask let's get into that booking that cat so you're talking to a guy who's very blue collar when it comes to just the amount of money my income i like time over money is what i've chose so i've you know picked a lifestyle where you know i'm not a six figure a year kind of guy not even close but what i have done is paid a lot of stuff off so I have more time than most people, that's for sure, and that's what's most important to me. So I knew that I was going to have to hire a cat hunter when I heard a couple horror stories. Uh, Friends of friends who went with guys to get their cat. Because in Idaho, if your buddy's got dogs, you can kind of do that. You know, you can run with them. And then, yep. but then there's a gray area where Fishing Game does a good job in Idaho of making sure people aren't outfitting illegally. And I know. One of my dad's friends' friend basically has dogs and took a guy out who said, "Hey, I've never gone cat hunting. I know you got dogs. Will you take me?" And the guy's like, "Yeah." And he took him out. They got a cat, and the guy never asked him for money. He, the guy with dogs never asked the guy for money. But when they went to the gas station to fill up his truck, the guy's like, "Hey, let me fill your truck up for you at the very least." And the guy was like, "Okay, that's cool." And the guy goes and fills his truck up and then comes out and flashes a badge and says, hey, I'm with Idaho Fishing Game. This is illegal what you just did. We're gonna And they wrote him up. I don't know if that's for sure. That's just the version that I heard. And when I heard that story, I was like, that's it, man. This was a couple of years ago I heard that. I'm like, I have to actually hire an outfitter. Do it black and white. I got way too much to lose 
not enough to gain to go kill a cat with a buddy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So I reached out to a few people, a few different outfitters, and what I did was I live really close to good cat hunting, and I was like, hey, man, I can't afford to pay you anywhere between $5,500 to $7,000 and hunt with you for a week straight. The weather's unpredictable, and I live close. Could you do a day rate? If it snows real good, we know we're going to find tracks. I can just drop what I'm doing, come over. You don't have a client. I'll pay you some sort of day rate, a trophy fee. And I actually got a couple outfitters to be like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. But the phone never rang. They always ended up having clients or it didn't snow. And so I just kept saving cash up. And then one day out of nowhere, you call me and you're like, hey, man, I got an opportunity for you. And we worked out a deal and we won't go into the specifics, but we worked out a deal where I got a really good cat hunt and I chased my dream and I did it on basically kind of a budget that I had. That's not always going to be the case. So when it comes to booking a cat hunt, let's just use you for example, what are the most key dates, obviously weather dependent, and what can people expect? Are you doing week hunts? Are you doing like you pay a fee and you have the whole seat? Like how do you run your your operation? Um, well, normally what we do um, for people that want to book out a ways, because it's, it's like I say, it's one of those things where it is, you know, it is it's quite a bit of money for a cat hunt. Our hunts are guaranteed, um, which makes it a little bit easier on guys. It, it does cost a little bit more for our hunts. But if you look at that and you go look at some other outfitters, yes, they're, you know, considerably less for the hunt. Yeah, there's a good chance you're not going to get a cat and or he's going to want you to shoot a small cat or the first track that you see. Or you don't get the right, correct weather. So you go spend a week with it raining and you paid that, that amount and uh now you're empty handed so then you're still back at square one wanting to get your cat and you already spent a bunch of money and i've had guys that come on hunts here that they've already been on two three four cat hunts one guy five cat hunts in particular that he had spent i think it was five grand each for these hunts and now he's out a ton of money you know without even still getting a cat where our our cat hunts you know you pay the one-time fee um it's a guaranteed hunt it doesn't matter you can come out whenever you want basically within the season if we have an opening with nobody in if you get your cat you know that's awesome and we're only gonna say we're only gonna shoot a nice tom so it's gonna be a trophy cat because we, we believe in once in a lifetime a cat is one of those things where it's you know yeah the, the meat's good that good to eat you know that sort of thing but it's not something that you you know for that amount of meat you get off you pay that much money to come on a hunt for something like that you're you are you are basically coming for the trophy um, so you want to shoot a mature cat, you know, a cat you're going to be proud of. And a lot of guys, you know, when they, the first time they, the first cat they see in the trees, the first cat they shoot. So they don't know how big the outfitter can tell them, well, that's a big cat, you know, and even after it's on the ground, they don't really know how big it is, you know, until you get it to a taxidermist and usually they'll tell you, well, you know, how you know big of a cat it is or whatnot. So funny you um, say that because, you know, <laughs> I didn't know you very well, but I had a friend that went with you and got a great cat and he spoke, he sang your praises. So I knew from a credible source you were legit, and when I got the call, I dropped everything, and it was hard for me to do, but it made it happen, and we got that cat killed later that day with some effort. It's on the ground, and I honestly don't know. If, I mean, I've seen cougars in person, and it's just hard to tell size-wise, you know, and I've actually helped a guy carry, drag a cougar out of the mountains, uh, and that was like a 100-pound cat, and I, and I didn't think that was very big, but I'm looking at this Tom, and I'm like, man, yeah, he looks good to me. But as soon as I took him to the uh, to get him checked in, I checked him at a, a taxidermy guy just uh, just closer to my house, and 
in Idaho there and checked it in. You got to check the skull or pull the tooth on cats. You got to get checked in within, I think, 10 days of your kill. I did it like the next day, and the guy, he was like, oh, my gosh, this is one of the best cougars I've ever seen. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And you know what he also said, Mike, was he said – this year alone, he had seen the most cougars come through his door, and these were people that hadn't hired an outfitter. These were all incidental kills, which uh-huh. immediately told me that cat numbers are definitely up. You know, yep. they're not hurting for sure. If there's the guy had double digit cats in there from incidental, he said he'd never seen anything like it. So there's there's plenty of cats, but then he actually. Uh, what he had, I had him do is I told him, hey, I don't have four or five grand right now to do a full body mount. So I had him just basically tan the hide and pull the skull out. That's all I could afford at the moment. And I said, I'll just get him. I have another friend that'll do the full body mount down the road. He said, cool. He texted me the, the green score and he said it was 14 and a half inches green. That's, mm-hmm. that's like. It's probably not going to drive Boone and Crockett, but that's Boone and Crockett cat, man. And uh, that was all you telling me, no, man, this is the right cat. So going with somebody who really knows their cats and isn't going to lead you astray and be like, oh, no, that's a good one. Oh, it's a female, but it's a good one, you know. So that's really important, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing with the cats as far as, you know, a guaranteed hunt. So somebody's got to be available to get to you. What's the furthest you've had a client do the guaranteed deal? Oh, we've had, I mean, we have guys from everywhere. It's, it's actually really nice for guys back East that do the guaranteed hunt. You know, like I say, we'll, we'll book a week for, you know, we got snow anywhere from the beginning of December through the, through the end of January. Um, you know, we'll say, okay, you know, you're going to come, we're going to put cats in the tree for you. You know, that sort of deal. If we don't get the right time, you know, it's like only thing you're out is airfare. That's the only thing you're out on. So you come back and hunt, hunt another cat, you know, hunt again. So that that's what most guys like that that it's a guarantee just because, like we repeated again, it's the the, the it's very condition dependent. Um, if it's raining, we don't have the snow or whatnot, it makes it tough. I mean, we do tree toms. There's some spots um, where the um, elk and deer winter. I'll actually go out and um, get on you know snowshoes or you know just with boots and go up and actually hike through some really steep rugged stuff. You know, get the cats you know up in some of those areas, try to jump one off a kill or something like that. And it's we're successful that way, but nowhere near as successful as when we have a good fresh snow on the ground where we can you know put on the miles on the roads, you know, the trucks or the snowmobiles and actually find the track that we're looking for. We know we, we pretty much know what a cat is before we even turn out on it. Um, we're looking for a cat that forty plus inch stride. Usually, once you get you know forty two inch stride, we say that okay, that's a mature tom. Um, every now and then, a female will have a forty inch stride if she's a you know real old mature mature female. She have a forty inch stride, so we'll we'll put that cat in a tree to kind of tell. Okay, we say we're for fifty fifty if it's a tom or not, you know that sort of thing, um, and then we can tell when the cat's in the tree. But most of the time, you could you're driving down the road and you see a cat track come off the bank and get out and look at it you're like ooh, ooh you know that's that's the one we want to go after it's like ah usually if you're kind of like ah maybe maybe not usually it's you know it's, it's either going to be a a young tom or uh you know a female so you know that's kind of how we run you know what we're doing basically so we know when you go walking into that tree unless somehow every now and then yeah the dogs will get on a different cat while they're cold trailing a cat but most of the time you know when you're walking in the tree that you there's a cat in the tree that you're probably gonna you know be taken so so with your clients from a long ways off you're basically looking at the weather ahead and then you're gonna decide hey we got good weather coming in go ahead and book a flight and that's how they do it i'm assuming 
Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, we have guys. We'll, we'll book it out. You know, like right now, I got a guy from Africa that book, and you know, we we got him for the first week of January um, of 2020. So this next winter, he's going to come the first week of January. This will be the second guy I've had from Africa, and he's a he's a professional hunter over there. Both these guys have been professional hunters um, over there, but we usually book that. You know. Right after Christmas or, you know, first couple of weeks of January, you're pretty much guaranteed snow. Um, you're guaranteed, you know, you're going to get your guaranteed cat, you know. Most of the cat hunts we have, unless somebody's really going to be picky, most of our cat hunts only last a few days most times if the conditions are right. You know, we go out there and we'll put on the miles um, and we'll find a cat, you know, the, the, the right cat within a few days most times. So when you're um, measuring a stride, what are you, are you measuring what exactly from distance to distance? Yeah, so you'll see if you're looking, you'll see three tracks. So every every other track, so you'll measure the toe, the toe to toe on on the other opposite track, basically. So there'll be a track in between, a footprint in between. Measure the toe from the one in front and the toe on the one behind that, basically. So that's you can basically tell how long the cat's striding from you know front foot, front foot, back foot there. Okay, well we're gonna get into some cougar biology in a second. I guess we'll start with, let's say the cat's in the tree. How in the hell do you decide if it's a male or female? Um, you, you can see there, you, there's, we call it a tom spot. Basically, it's a stain from where they're, you know, where they're pissing on their hide. You'll see a black spot. And if it's a big mature time, you can actually see their testicles pretty easy. A female, her, you know, her vulva is tucked up underneath her tail most times. Um, but when you walk up to a tree, um, if, it's a, if it's a young tom, that's what we're looking for. When you walk up to a tree and you got a mature tom in the tree, you can just look at its head and be like, okay, yeah, it's a big tom. Just how big the head is usually on them. Um, but, you know, biology-wise, yeah, you're, you're looking for the testicles basically on the tom in the tree. And, you're, you know, when you're under the tree, usually they're only, you know, no more than, you know, 30 feet from you most times. You know, they usually don't go too high in a tree. So you can usually see that. I've, I've used binos before. Um, that sort of thing to, you know, look real close and just make sure sometimes it's usually pretty easy. Once you, for somebody that hasn't seen a lot of cats in a tree, it'd be almost impossible to tell, but, um, you know, you got a guide that's been doing it for a long time. You know, he, he can tell he's seen enough cats in a tree that he should be able to tell. If he can't tell what the cat is in a tree, um, there's probably a problem there. Just, yeah. it just depends on how many cats you've treated. I was like, when I walked up, I'm like, I just took your word for it, but I could definitely tell that the cat I killed had a huge head, like ridiculous head. So it was pretty obvious at that point. But when it comes to cats that have kills and food in their stomach, that's something I never thought about until I tried picking my cat up. And, you know, I'm a guy who probably weighs, I walk around like a buck 60, and that cat felt heavier than me when I picked him yeah. up off the ground. And you're like, I remember you said something like, well, yeah, he definitely didn't have a kill, so he had no food in his belly. Imagine if he did. So how much more would my, like, I don't, what do you think my cat weighed? Because people ask me, and I'm like, dude, I didn't bring a scale in the woods, sorry. And then what do you think he would have weighed if he had food in his belly? So yeah, like a mature time like that, your <clears throat> mature time is usually right around 160 pounds, you know, just on a normal average day. But if they kill an elk or a deer, there's nothing for them to have 30 pounds of meat in their stomach. Literally their bellies will be dragging on the ground. They just lay there and gorge themselves. So a 160 pound cat, you know, it could be a 190 pound cat, you know, depending if he, he, he ate something, you know, that night. So that that's where people say, oh, I killed a huge cat. You know, he was 190 pounds. Well, it's like, okay, yeah, he just your average normal, you know, Tom, he just 160 pounds, you know, normally, 
But of course, when you when he's been sitting on a kill all night and he's got a belly full of food, nothing for him to have thirty pounds of meat in their belly. Um, Interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering about that because I was figuring, you know, like he was definitely like. So we walked up. He was treed. He was kind of um, on unmarked property. We had access from the landowner below, just below it. He was real close to National. We both agreed that it was. Sorry, man, my phone is blowing up. But uh, we walked up and we were like, "Oh man, this is a little gray. Let's go ahead and let the tree, let the cat down, and we'll just tree him up real quick." And so you tied your dogs up. You hit the tree with the stick. The vibration drove the cat crazy. He jumped down in seconds. By the way, he jumped from a height where it probably would have broke every bone in my body, and <laughs> he didn't even miss a step and took off. Then you let the dogs loose. And I was thinking, oh, this thing's going to be treated in 300 yards. And then he went a long ways, did some circles. And then you're yeah. like, oh, he doesn't have, you know, he has no food in his belly. Is that pretty typical when a cat doesn't have a kill that they can go a little further? Yeah, it can. But like one thing with that cat is, I don't know if you remember when we were running them, I, you could see the dogs were moving them real slow. And then the, some of the dogs, you know, got out of there. That cat was actually fighting on the ground to where. He would just walk in with the dogs, you know, barking at him, basically. So that usually they just pop up a tree. But him being an old, mature Tom, been around the block a few times, you know, he didn't want a tree again right away. And that's why he went quite a bit further, just because they were. He was just walking. The dogs had him caught, but they had him caught on the ground, basically. Um, gotcha. What was going on there? So that that's kind of what what happened there um, in that situation. Uh, but yeah, like if he had a belly full of food, <laughs> he he would have you know fell out of the tree probably you know and probably only went you know another hundred yards and had to go back up again just because you know the same thing as you, you had a big old meal you can't really go for a run you know after Thanksgiving dinner it's basically the same thing so. no doubt so <clears throat> trying to figure out so I've seen I think somewhere around six or seven cougars out hunting never had a shot opportunity on one. Uh, I've seen quite a few back when I used to turkey hunt in kind of north of Spokane there. We had a lot of cats. Called in a couple turkey hunting and saw a few here and there. And then I've seen, I think I told you this, but I saw one chasing antelope down in the Wahis in Idaho. And then I filmed one about 10 yards away. It's on YouTube somewhere uh, in Nevada. And I just walked up on a cat basically on the edge of a cliff. He was, uh, that cat was just out in the sun. I told you I've seen a lot of cats in the wild, but... I was wondering, do cats spend some of their daylight hours up in trees on their own? Yeah, um, I've, I've uh, had the dogs cold trail before. And a cold trail is basically the cat before it's jumped, the track that we find that comes across the road. We turn the dogs loose on it and um, until the dogs catch up to where the cat's either bedded or the cat's basically still out on the move and the dogs catch up. Then we call it a jump race once the cat's on the move from the dogs. But I've turned loose on um, tracks before that were – um, had snowed that night and found impressions in the snow where you can see the cat had walked, but of course there's snow in the track and turn the dogs loose on that, which they can run fine because they put their head down in the, in the impression they can smell a cat. But I followed dogs in, in one circumstance in particular, it was an old, you know, it was an old snowed in track and followed, you know, walked the dogs, followed the dogs tracks to where they, where they had come up treed and followed the dogs in. You could see the impressions in the snow, the snow track was still all snowed in all the way up to the base of the tree. And the cat was in the tree. So obviously had spent the night in the tree um, up there. It was a big spruce tree, lots of big branches and stuff. And he was probably just hanging out up there, um, which is probably a good way to kill something, too. There's big snow. Those deer like bedding underneath those big spruce trees that don't have much snow underneath them. And deer comes underneath there. He gets lucky. You know, I'm sure they've killed lots of deer that way before. 
Um, I totally had never thought of that. I always pictured cats like either in a den or on the edge of some cliffs. But when you think about it and how easy they go up trees and we as like I hunt from a tree stand, man, it's awesome. And it makes you wonder why some deer look up. Maybe it's because they have had encounters with cougars coming at them from above. And I mean, it makes total sense now. I just don't know why I never thought of it. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. They uh, they definitely probably kill a lot of stuff coming out of trees. I imagine. You think about, I don't know how smart the cat are, cats are, you know, or whatnot, but they seem to be pretty smart, you know, as far as hunting wise goes. Um, I mean, a deer trail comes under a tree within. I mean, how far they can jump out away from a tree. I mean, they could be they could be twenty feet up in a tree, and um, I mean, they could jump, you know, ten yards out. So if a deer comes anywhere within radius ten yards of the tree, I'm sure that deer he's got them, you know, he's going to land right on top, probably break their back landing on top of them, you know? So I'm sure they, I'm sure they kill a lot of stuff jumping out of trees on, on them. I had a newfound respect for cougars too, because like, you know, the ones I've seen, I just hadn't seen that big of ones or I just didn't think they looked that big. And then I helped, like I said, some random guy killed a cougar in, uh, over there in Idaho. And I, I was just out wolf hunting and I, he looked really tired and I said, what's up, man? He's like, Oh, I killed a cougar. Can you help? Can you help me get it out? And I was like, absolutely. And it, you know, I helped him drag it out and I, it was probably like a hundred pound female. I wasn't that impressed. So, you know, a lot of times I'm hunting elk and cat country for sure. And bear country. And I don't pack heat at all. I just, I haven't the last few years. I'm going to probably reconsider after picking up that cat that I just killed, man. Like I firmly believe if that dude landed on me with one swipe, he could break my neck. He was so jacked. He was so much muscle on that animal. A newfound respect for potentially, hey, carrying a pistol ain't a bad idea in Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into some of the biology on these cats. So there is no like quote unquote rut or mating season on cougars. They just tell us kind of how that breeding works. Well, they're the, really the only um, mammal, especially for, for in this area, um, for some place where we have such hard winters and stuff, but they are so efficient at killing. They, I mean, they, they can, there's no time of the year where, where they go hungry, basically. Um, like a lot of animals in wintertime, you know, there's no way a deer or an elk would have you know, fawns or calves in the wintertime because it wouldn't survive. Well, with cats, a lion, a uh, mountain lion, they'll come in any time of the year just because they're successful, at, you know, all, all, all times of the year. And the kittens, they they got enough, you know, good enough coats on them when they're born and everything that, you know, they'll survive. So it, it's just one of those things you never know when a female is going to come in heat. So those big toms, that's why it's kind of a reason why a big one of those toms has such a big, large area is because they're always having to patrol it. They're always looking for young toms coming in, but especially looking for the females that they, they know they have in that area um, to be coming into heat. So it, it's just one of those things. And if a female doesn't have kittens, it's only a matter of time. Either she's already pregnant or she's going to be coming into heat and she needs to be bred. Uh, but a female, she'll usually keep their kittens with them um, probably about a year and a half, two years. Seems like the, the young toms, uh, um, which we call a sub-adult, a sub-adult tom will usually leave a, leave a female at about a year, year and a half, and then. Um, but a, a female sub-adult, they'll usually leave their mother, you know, a year and a half up to two years most times. What's the gestation but, on a on a female there? Um, I think there's something like kind of like a dog or whatnot, 60, 60, 70 days, something like that. Oh my gosh! Okay, wow, that's a fast turnaround. And then as far as territory goes, like, what is like? Is there 
I mean, what? How much country can a tom, a mature tom like the one I killed, cover? Like, what's their what's their range? Um, it depends on what time of year. You know, this time of year got snow; they're not going to travel quite as far. But in the summertime, I mean, it's nothing. You know, for a cat to you know probably, I, I would guess a tom he could probably have you know 30, 40 square miles. Probably, I would I would think even more, probably fifty. It depends on if he's have an established area or not. You get a young tom um, that got you know he's got kicked away from his mom. It's nothing for him to go probably 60 70 miles before he finds an actual area that's open but it just depends on the cat i guess you know that sort of thing um, but a big mature tom as far as his area established area I, I would probably think 30 square miles i would think something like that that's incredible man it really is and they're such efficient killers and i, I think they're pretty responsible for a lot of elk calf mortality especially uh i just think there's i mean i think they're awesome i did see and i didn't I don't know what you know about this, but I have a buddy who runs trail cameras pretty aggressively. By aggressively, in a 400-acre private spot in Montana, he's got about 70 trail cameras on video mode. It's a pretty legit operation. And he, and in Montana, you can't run cameras during season, so he has you know to take them down or whatever. But he runs them for most of the year, except for hunting season. He's got video of a cougar making sounds that sound similar to an elk elk calf sound and oh, I'm, really i'm wondering can cougars mimic elk and call them in i don't know i've never i've never heard of that but um if you got one that's smart you know smart enough to do that I, it might be just a sound they make and they, they kind of make a chirping noise yeah um kind of a mating noise is a chirp so i, I, I could see where it could kind of sound like a cow calf you know something like that yeah, it was incredible. I was like, I said, man, is that thing trying to mimic an elk or is that just its own <laughs> communication? Because it was scary close to a calf call. And you and I both know from elk hunting, calf calls work really well when it comes to vocalization. Yes. So anyways, well, let's move on from cats, man, because uh, we got other things to talk about. You run your dogs on bears. I've actually never been a part of that. I've killed a lot of bears. Uh, I do half and half, probably half over bait, half spot and stock. Usually I get, I do one of each a year. I can get two bear tags. We're in Idaho here. So running dogs on bears is a whole new thing for me. I imagine lung capacity. A bear has considerable, especially in the spring, a lot more lung capacity than say a cougar. What's that like running dogs on bears, man? Um, it, it can be pretty exciting. That's for you, for sure. You'll get some long races sometimes, like I say, especially in the spring when they're when they're, you know, not all, you know, real, got a lot of fat on them and stuff. They go a long ways. But a lot of times um, we run our hunts, we run the dogs off of bait 50%. And the other 50% we're running the dogs. Basically, we have what we call a strike rack on top of the truck. It's on the dog box and they hook them to that. And we just drive roads and the dogs, when they catch wind of a bear, they'll, they'll strike and they'll start, they'll just blow up, you know, they'll start barking their heads off and let us know. And then we have a couple start dogs so we'll, we'll unclip. They'll go figure the track out, figure what direction the bear's going, that whole deal. Get the track started, and then we turn all the other dogs in. Um, and then the race is on, usually. And then it depends on the bear. A lot of our bears in our this area up here, where we run in Unit 2, is they'll, they'll bay up. Um, they like to fight on the ground, um, that sort of thing, which can be really exciting because you got to get in front of them. Um, you got to get on the ground. Usually you're right there, close quarters with the bear when those dogs are pushing them. Uh, you know, across, you know, a little draw or whatnot, you got to be right in there close to the dogs and close proximity. And, um, usually the dogs are pushing the bear right past you. So you're talking about sometimes with thin feet, if it's real thick where you gotta, you know, shoot the bear. <laughs> so it gets pretty exciting sometimes there. 
but then, you know, that's usually 50% of the time they're baited up. The other times they're usually in a tree, um, which isn't, you know, it's kind of like the cat hunt sort of deal. You get them in a tree, which is really nice, especially with bears, because same thing with cats, they're real hard to judge um, a bear. So once you get a bear in a tree, same thing. We don't like killing, you know, females, and especially don't like killing females that, you know, are lactating, which have cubs, so a sow. Um, and we can tell that when a, when a, when a bear's in a tree, pretty easy if it's a sow or if she's, if she, if she, see if she has milk, if her, um, nipples are all swollen up and that sort of thing, which a lot of bears, especially like in Montana where he's done over there, there, every, every, there seem like there's more sows that got killed than anything else, um, because they're out having to feed a lot more time, more during the daytime, um, to provide for cubs. And, you know, when you're spotting stock bear, you see a bear, you quick drop down, you shoot it. Well, that's, there's all kinds of, you know, immature bears and um, sows that got shot um, there. They have problems with that. Where in Idaho, it seems like a lot more mature bears get killed because we use dogs, you know, use hounds in this state. And we can judge a bear a lot, you know, a lot better before we take it. Um, and a lot of hound guys, they don't want to kill sows. Same thing, you know, it's because they, they, they want the resource to be there. So that hounds work really well in that regard, especially as far as managing goes. And for us to manage our area that we hunt in, same thing. We don't like to kill sows. Um, same thing as we don't like to kill the female lions. Um, so that works out really well for us um, in our area. So with uh, with bears, cats, and wolves, obviously those are all concerns with your dogs. And you have walker hounds, right? Yes. Okay. I've heard that, you know, for cats especially, if they get like – in a cliff area, they'll just swipe dogs off cliffs, and that's a, a pretty fast way for the dogs to die. Doesn't seem like too often bears, cat, or dogs and cats like fight until the death because there's just so many dogs. But uh, with bears, do bears fight your dogs? And am I right about the whole cliff thing and cougars? Expand on that. Yeah, I mean, if a cat, if there's a big time and he wants to kill dogs, he's just going to do it. He's going to be able to kill them. Where there's a bear, you know, we got a bear, yeah, they'll, they'll hurt the dogs and stuff. But usually if a bear gets a hold of a dog, usually the dog usually survives just because the dogs can squirm away. If the cat gets a hold of your dog, he's going to kill the dog if he wants to kill the dog. But, yeah, cliff areas, that's um, one outfitter that I know of up to Joe. He had this one cat that they, they just pretty much didn't want to run anymore because he'd always go to this one spot get out on the cliffs and back up on a cliff and the dogs would, you know, try to get up in his face and he'd swat them off. And, you know, dog can't take a fall, you know, a couple hundred feet off a cliff and survive, you know, so that cat knew he could get away from the dogs doing that, <clears throat> that sort of thing. But bears, yeah, it seems like dogs get injured a lot more with bears, but they usually don't kill the dog. Usually the dogs are, you know, you know, a couple of weeks of healing and they're ready to go again. If a cat, if a cat gets a hold of your dog, usually it's, it's a done deal. Um, but um i've had some close calls i've had one where the you know the cat got a hold of the dog and bit right through the collar and the collar saved the dog because the bear because the cat was hanging out of the collar and couldn't bite all the way through the collar bears same things had them get a hold of them usually it's a paw or something they swat them and it slice cuts them open but heck we do all our own veterinarian work we got you know use uh staples and super glue those those hounds are so tough you know they love what they do they love getting in fights with bears and that sort of deal, and you know we'll, we'll staple them up and they heal quick and they're ready to get after it again. But um, it, it's just one of those things. There is the risk, you know. They are our dogs are our family here, you know. We we love our dogs, uh, especially what they do for us, you know that sort of thing. But there is always a risk that you're going to lose a dog every time you go out hunting. 
Wolves, wolves, they, they're probably one of the worst things for the dogs. Um, you gotta be really careful, um, hunting in wolf country. Um, we, there's areas that I won't hunt just because there are a lot of wolves in those areas and, uh, you will lose dogs doing that. Um, so you just gotta be smart about that. Um, so the wolves are pretty territorial. They hear another dog and, and they're on it. Like they waste zero time and it's game over. How does, how does that play out? I hate to go into detail, but I'm very curious. Yeah, um, so usually worst time is in the spring with the wolves because it's breeding season for them. Or, well, now it's breeding season. For, for February is worse when we're hunting cats for wolves. But the springtime when they have their um, they have their um, their puppies, the wolves do, they're super territorial if any dogs come around anywhere near their dens. They just want to they just want to kill them, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, the dogs, of course, the dogs are always barking on track or treeing. And those wolves hear that and they just get pissed off immediately, you know, because right away because there's, you know, other canines in their area. And, of course, they'll go to the dogs and the dog doesn't have a chance against a wolf. You know, a wolf is, you know, 80 to 120 pounds to a dog that's, you know, 50 to 60 pounds. And uh, they just, yeah, they just, it's not a good, it's not a good deal when that happens. Dogs get, usually whole packs of dogs get killed then um, sometimes. Yeah, I noticed that where where I elk hunt specifically when I first started hunting there maybe 15 years ago, I'd hear I'd hear a lot of guys running do- uh bears in the spring. And I got to be honest, I don't think I've seen a hound hunter where I hunt for bears, which is in my elk area in the last 6 or 7 years. And I've talked to a couple of houndsmen and they won't even run cats in there because it is it's pretty wolfed out where I hunt. I you know, I've told people before, man, I, I run into wolves every year like clockwork and they're in there thick. And um, it's just the bear and cougar are definitely up as well. It seems like in, on my cameras, I'm getting a yep. lot of pred- a lot of predators on camera in my elk areas. And uh, yeah, it's too bad, really. So let's move on to bears a little bit more deep. So like where in North Idaho, it seems like anytime last week of May to almost even the second week in June, the, the bear rut is kicking off, which is what I love about bears, man. They wake up. They start eating, they kind of get their energy back, and then it's on to breeding season. It's pretty fun and exciting. When do you see the rut kind of taking place in your area up there in Unit 2? Um, usually around that last week of um, uh, May, first week of June, it's really happening. And then our, our area, our Unit 1 that we hunt in, um, it's spot and stock only. So we'll go out and sit on some cutovers, and it's nothing to sit on you know, cutovers up in this area, and there will be you know six bears out on a cutover, and you can watch those bears interact, you know. Uh, you see a sow out there and a couple, you know, boars hanging around her, and you'll see them get get after it sometimes, you know, yeah. hair flying, that sort of deal, you know. And that's usually the in June that we see that big time going on. And that's another, you know, key point in Unit 1, our elk population is kind of down compared to a lot of areas. We'll see elk out on these same cutovers. Um, we can't, for, in, for people that don't know, you can't run dogs or you can't bait in Unit 1. And um, so there is a high bear density because of that. So just imagine being a, um, an, an, a cow elk out in one of these cutovers trying to have her calf, and in this same cutover you see one, one, one cow elk out there, and there's six bears within, you know, this prior area is probably, you're looking at probably, you know, 200 acres, that sort of deal. She doesn't have a chance, you know. And so that, that's one of the things. Our, our bear density in Unit 1 is really high, and the reason they say that we can't bait and run dogs is because uh, there's grizzly bears, and all my time up in this area, I've only seen a couple times where I've seen grizzly bear tracks. I've never actually seen a grizzly bear. 
and coming from where I used to, where I used to guide, where I've seen grizzly bears all the time. Um, I can tell you right now, there's hardly any grizzly bear. I think the grizzly bears that are here, grizzly bears that are, um, just kind of passing through. Um, so it's one of those deals issues that, you know, I've talked with, you know, fish and game and stuff and it's, they need to do something different about it. Um, at least let us run dogs, um, that sort of thing. There, there's a, there's a, a tag you can put in for, there's 15 tags for a fall season and you can run dogs on bear. Uh, but it's so little, it doesn't, it doesn't have any effect. On yeah. That. I didn't know um, about that tag, but that's cool. I think guys listening that want to cut their teeth on a spring bear, they could look at hiring you for sure. And if they didn't want to do it on their own, I would, you know, don't be intimidated by the grizzly factor. Get your ass up to unit one. Check it out. Anything in there. I mean, there's high bear densities and there's good country in there to go check out for bears. And it's a generous season. And maybe your first year you hire here, Mike here and you, you run dogs or whatever or bait, whatever, because you can do both. And kind of learn the ropes, learn the do's and don'ts, and then try it on your own. But we need more bear hunters in Idaho. One of the few states that still allows baiting. One of the few states that still allows a spring dog baiting spot and stock. You know, my state, Washington, has, I think, almost as much bears as Idaho, if not more. And they're, the only spring season is a draw. It's totally messed up. The bear population's out of control. And so there's very few places left where you can do that spring. And and Mike, guys are jonesing to get out come spring. You know what I yep. mean? And yep. w- what exciting hunt. I still haven't done it with dogs. I do want to do it at least once just to experience it. It's so much fun, you know, working, watching the dogs do all the work. And and uh, they're the hunter. They're the deal. I mean, you're just kind of part of the process. So yep. um, do you guys bait? I assume you do as well. Um, we do a little bit, but, um, like I say, most of are running the dogs or we're spotting stock in unit one. Cause we, we're running the dogs. We're in unit two, uh, cause that allows baiting and running dogs. And then, uh, unit one, we're spotting stock. So it's one, we can do a combo deal too, uh, which works out really well. Cause we'll run the dogs in the morning and then in the evening, we'll go out and sit on a cutover and try to catch a, a big boar coming across a cutover. So it, it just depends on what you want to do. It's, it's your hunt. Um, our bear hunts are our least expensive. Um, you know, ch- check it out. We got our website and everything. You can look at our bear hunts. Um, if you want, want, you know, prices and stuff, give me a call or email me. Um, what is but, your guys's website? Uh, longtailoutfitters.com. Copy that. Are you guys on social media as well? Yeah, we're on Facebook. You can look at that. And we also have an Instagram. Nice job. Okay. So let's move on towards, uh, the elk, the Wapiti. You guide for elk. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's, and I that's both. definitely that's definitely the second second favorite thing to do when you get a um, you know other than running the dogs is getting out archery hunting on elk and getting a big old bull come running in screaming tearing a tree apart you know that's that's what we that's what we live for you know you get a few weeks out of the year where they're where they're amped to do that and that's the best time of year that's for sure uh, but yeah we we do we do um, archery hunts um, we have three weeks of archery hunts that we do and it's great I mean we do some pack way back in uh, we have an area that's all national forest, but we can get back in away from all the public and uh we get into some pretty good elk hunting in there and usually those bulls in there they're they're not pressured too much and they come in pretty good and that's that's what you love you know you get on some areas that are public a lot of a lot of guys out hunting and those elk they get real call shy well a lot of our area that we hunt um, we get back in far enough we kind of push past all the public hunters and we get into where they're they're still uh responding good and it can it gets exciting that's for sure I think that's critical right there. So for those that are elk hunters listening, you know, getting, finding elk that are not messed with, you know, are, it's going to up your odds. You're going to have more encounters. And I always say, Mike, on this podcast, I need encounters to kill elk. 
I'm just, I'm not the kind of guy that's like, okay, I got one bull in this drainage and, and I'm just going to slow play him until I get my opportunity. I need, I basically just, it's a, it's a numbers game, man. I need elk bugling. I need him talking. I need to go down there and screw it all up so I can remember, oh yeah, don't do that. You idiot. You know what I mean? Like you need lots of encounters to get good at elk hunting and to know what not to do. What are you, what do you think some of the most common things that you, like, so you guide, you have some, some rookie elk hunters. What are some of like the basic things you're telling these guys when they arrive in camp? Like, okay, check it out. Here is a five don'ts. Don't do the following. What are they? Um, so the biggest thing I always tell first, you know, first thing is, is, um, guys always want to hide like crazy. Do not sit behind a tree. I don't know how many times. And even guys, I tell them, they get because the, the, I say, okay, get up there and set up in front of that tree. And half the time, they either sit beside the tree or they get underneath the tree. And it's like, don't do that. Get in front of the tree. The thing is, don't move, you know. And when you see them coming or you hear them coming, and I always tell guys, you got to practice. You know, these guys want to shoot these bows that are, you know, 70-plus pounds where they can hardly hold it back, you know. It's one of these things. No, you got to be able, you know, go down to 60 pounds so you can hold that bow back for a while. Sometimes you got to hold your bow back for, you know, a minute, two minutes, you know, where he sees him coming. If you pull back when he's there in sight, he's going to spot you every, especially mature bull. You're never going to get to pull back when they're, when they're, when they're in sight. Um, so don't get behind a tree. Um, always sit out kind of in front of the tree and then pull back when you see him coming. <clears throat> Basically, and then the move sometimes too. You see that bull, he's kind of walking. You sit in one spot. Half the time, you see the guys all they have to do is kind of take a step to the left or a step to the right, and they'll be able to get a shot while well, they don't move. And the bull's standing there, and finally, you know, either he smells them or gets the heck out of there. Don't be afraid to move when it comes time that you're pulled back because usually that bull's going to kind of just kind of look at you for a second there when you move, and you'll have that opportunity to shoot. That That's kind of the three main things most times. And when you're calling, that bull's not, you know, he's not, he's hanging up or whatnot. If he kind of walks back out of sight, because sometimes they'll walk back and forth, back and forth. And if your guide's back there, he can't see what's going on. You see that bull walk across a couple times, move up to where you're going to be able to get a shot. Move to where he was coming through, because most of the times they'll walk back in that same spot a few times, especially if he's got cows and he's coming back and forth between his cows. Get up to where you see him, because if he already came once, he's not going to come any further the next time. Um, so either you're going to move up with your guide or if you see that opportunity, get the heck up there and get to where he's where he already came through. Because chances are, if that guy calls that bull back again, he's going to come back to that same spot because he feels like he he was already there once. He feels safe there. So that that's kind of another another big point there. I was going to add to that. Like, so I think that a lot of guys struggle to get to that point where that bull's coming in, and when it finally like all of a sudden happens, there's an immense amount of anticipation, but pressure and this sense of urgency that truly if you were to take a step back which is impossible to do you need lots of reps in this situation but truly there is no rush like the bull is going to come allow him to come don't pull your bow back way too early because then you are going to get stuck holding you know your poundage whatever you're pulling you know peak weight plus your holding poundage for way too long and then you're going to get shaky and that trigger finger is going to get itchy and you're most likely not going to execute a true surprise release the other thing is you know when a bull's coming in and slobbering whatever like a lot of times you're like okay i gotta shoot right now and they don't range and now in north idaho you don't most times you don't need to range you're going to use your top pin but i can't tell you how many animals i've missed in my career because i didn't stop 
and range and then pull back. And I just, you you always convince yourself you don't have the time to do that. And at some point you got to evolve in your game where you got to understand, and especially in certain terrain features, you have to range or don't get a shot. That's okay. But you have to range, and if you just you lose your shot opportunity, but you knew the yardage, you're almost better off than either wounding or missing. And chances are you'll still get away with ranging and getting your shot still. I know it's, it sounds good on a podcast, and when it plays out in real life, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So every, every every opportunity is different too. Every single time, it's it's there's never the same the same circumstance twice you say well if it happens again i'll you know i'll, I'll do this <laughs> different well it's not gonna probably happen that same way again guaranteed um, and, and and as far as ranging goes too when you set up and somebody you know even before even before you start calling especially if you're calling for yourself make sure you get ranges take those ranges first before that bull screaming down there well okay you can start calling he's gonna come running in well why, why don't you just take the extra second to range a couple trees that way you already know um, before he even comes in okay that tree's that tree's 20 that tree's 30 40 50 60 you know that sort of thing that way you kind of already know before he comes in what it's going to be like and same thing you know it's easy to say that you know like what we're talking right now and you know totally different you know circumstance plays out he might come to where he didn't, didn't think he was going to come because usually that's what happens usually they come where you don't think they're going to come um, oh yeah they come <laughs> the weirdest ways possible you're like it doesn't even make sense, but that's that's elk hunting for you. What were you going to yeah. say about equipment? Um, so equipment wise, too, you know, there's different. We get we get a lot of guys that come out that are they're big time deer hunters, and they have the the single pin sights that are adjustable. Those are great, you know, they work good and everything. But elk hunting, you know, same thing. If you if you range all these different trees and a bull comes in, if you pull back and he walks behind a tree and he walks closer to you, then you got to let your bow down and then adjust your sight. That, that doesn't work. So what works really good is those adjustable sights where you have five pins and then that last pin, then you can adjust if you need to shoot further. Um, but usually the fixed pin sights is what, what I recommend using a lot of times for elk hunt, just because in situations like that, where you already have your trees range and that bull comes in. If he's facing you, for example, okay, he, he walks out of that 60 yards. So you got that single pin dialed to six and he walks straight at you for, you know, 30 yards no, you have to let down, adjust your sight, the whole deal, just to be able to pull back again. That's probably not going to happen um, with that, you know, that that situation. Yeah, um, I have but, a, I switch sights. I don't have a sight sponsor, but I try them all, and I just put on a spot hog. It's called a Fast Eddie, and it's like a single pin, but it's got two pins in one, and they're vertical. So yep. it's that's kind of cool. You you know, I like when my top pin's at twenty, my second pin I think's like at. Uh, man, like 40 or something there, there, I can't remember exactly, but something like that. And, and that's cool. But I, I agree wholeheartedly. If you're hunting brush country to just go with a three to five pin slider, you're going to be, you know, tr- just trust us on that. That's just going to be your best bet. You don't want to have to be sliding a site, which happened to me in Nevada last year. I was hunting for elk. I finally drew a Nevada tag and man, my bow, I was hard on my bow, but I had a bunch of stuff just break on my bow, and I brought a backup bow. And well, my backup bow was like my tree stand bow, and it was a single pin slider. And <laughs> yeah. long story short, is I ended up killing my bull. I shot him at seventy yards, and it I just missed. I just basically hit a little bit above brisket, just clipping a little bit of lung. And so the bull went a long ways. And when I went to go make a follow up shot. 
it would have been so much nicer to have fixed pins than try to like sneak up on the bowl to finish them off and slide your just range and slide. It just takes too much time. So I'm with you on that for sure. Now, when it comes to having a caller, Idaho is a little different depending on which part of the state you're hunting. Um, I think down south and in the middle, you, you, your part, your calling setups are going to be a lot different. You're going to be further apart. But up in north Idaho, especially brush country and western Montana and even eastern Washington, you can be pretty close to your caller. What would you say the average distance is you are in your hunter? Uh, I'm usually probably about 40 to 60 yards behind the hunter. And a lot of times it works really good in brush. Those elk when it's thick they can't make you out in the brush so even if that bull you want them to actually kind of see the collar almost a lot of times you're raking brush and that sort of thing it's good for them to be able to see that tree moving so you're raking a tree and you know, all the branch or whatnot those bulls see that tree getting raked it almost convinces them okay yeah okay i'm coming in now because that you know he's he's right there he almost convinces them that that is an elk a lot of times so you want them to kind of be able to see that you know you, especially if you're kind of back in the shadow and you're moving back and forth in there he can't tell if you're an elk or a person walking in there. He just sees movement a lot of times. Um, a lot of times we're elk hunting. We're not really sneaking around a lot of times. We're, you know, don't try to be quiet unless you're trying to sneak in to get close to then to set up the call. But a lot of times in this thick country, you're making so much noise. It's almost better to sound like an elk walking, you know, a couple elk walking through the brush than to sound like a something that's sneaking through the brush because something that's sneaking through the brush is usually going to be a predator so usually we don't tell guys you know you don't have to be super quiet you know it's actually good because we'll, we'll you know we'll set up we'll call you know we'll do some cow calls or bugle and nothing will respond and then you'll walk up you know 50 yards and you'll break a branch and all of a sudden a bull screams at you that's what convinces them to hear you know heard a branch break or something like that so that it's different in the thick country just because of that because elk make a ton of noise you hear a herd of elk going through the brush up here i mean it sounds like a herd of cattle going through the brush so uh, a lot of times i've called in elk just just making noise basically you call the, you know a few hundred yards back and you get up and that bull's bugling don't even re- really respond just kind of break some brush or kind of rake a tree a little bit and they'll just come right in sometimes doing that because a lot of times you know a lot of guys they get real excited calling a bull bugles and you know they just start calling like crazy you know and it's just it doesn't sound right where you know a lot of elk if you listen to like sometimes when you're trying to call a bull in that's real quiet he just bugles every now and again and he breaks a tree or whatnot um that works a lot of times let him bugle more than you make let him make more noise that way you know you're kind of sound like you're not quite as interested and he's more interested and then he kind of gets pissed off um and comes in i mean there's so many different ways to call it just depends on the elk um and you call once you called enough called in enough elk you kind of figure out you know what mood that elk is in and um what's usually it seems like every day we we call in elk when we're out elk hunting with the three the three week season we usually call bull in just about every day in our area yeah i always i always have to hear bugles every day or it's not a good day and i'm not going back to the camp until i get to hear something i've told people that before and i just keep bringing that back that hey i need to find elk to kill elk and i need elk to talk to kill elk so that's what i'm going to do until i find them and uh, i was helping a couple of newbie elk hunters out this year and what happened was i killed uh, uh my first bull in idaho and convinced them to help me pack it out and thank god they did because it was in a pretty bad spot where you kind of needed stock or it was going to be three days of packing and they agreed to help me and i said you know what bring your bows i'll call for you and we called in a couple of bulls and one thing i noticed you know i put myself in your shoes because i hunt solo almost exclusively for elk 
and it didn't always be that way, but it's just what works for me. But when I was calling for them, man, like they like turned it, like they only could go off their experience of whitetail hunting. And mm-hmm. I bet you get a lot of clients from the Midwest and the East, and I get a ton of most of my emails come from those guys coming out west. So this is not a whitetail that you're hunting. They aren't going to hear you breathe, and they're not going to care that you break branches and and break brush. And like you said, it's almost better to sound louder than to sound like you're trying to sneak. Um, exactly. It sells. It closes the deal. These guys are totally uh, just sneaking in on these bulls as I was calling them in, and they're doing this little like slow, methodical stalk through the brush. It's just like, dude, no, just bust your ass 20 yards up there and get ready. It's going to happen. Yep. Yep. So that's been – it was cool. I hope to hunt with more newbie hunters because I sure learn a lot about – what to teach on this podcast and i'm certainly no expert i have killed a lot of elk but i'm still learning i'm a student and that's what i love about elk hunting right man you just there's always something you're going to learn every day about their behavior the biology the ecology everything that goes into preparing so i guess we're going to end the podcast mike with what are you doing to be able to hike as fast as you are man i'm serious like i had a pack on but you you must have like known I was from Elk Shape. You're like, all right, well, I'm going, and you were gone. I was like, holy <laughs> well, crap! I, well, I had a pack on too. You remember? I I guess so you just. I, 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 had I was. A pack on. If you watch the YouTube video, I'm like, I stopped. Was like, dude, this kid's 25. He's kicking my ass. What's going on here? But uh, no, seriously, what do you do to stay in such good shape, man? You you were humping those hills. I was impressed. It's it's the hound hunt, and that's what does it. I mean, you chase dogs in areas that you'd normally never even hike in, you know, and you're, you're chasing the dogs, and you're in pretty darn good shape. You know, I don't work out or anything um, other than hiking, you know, and that sort of thing, and um, I eat a lot of wild game, I guess. I don't eat any uh, fast food or any beef or anything like that. It's all eating either elk or bear or um, cat or whatnot. That's what we, that's my uh, diet, I guess. Um, eat that about every night and go out and hike three four hours a day chasing dogs around or chasing elk or whatever you know no it's working man i, I was really <laughs> impressed and like i said that never comes like people usually don't like hunting with me because i i hike pretty fast and oh, we don't slow down for much but i was impressed at your level so speaking of wild game dude i just had my first ever mountain lion for dinner last night got uh i got that line um, tubed out and then i took it over got it scored checked in all that stuff and then um, came back home, and it was so cold, if you remember last week, that it was already frozen. I was like, crap. Yeah. So yeah. I had to unthaw it in the bathtub at my house, which thank God my wife puts up with that, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> butchered it up really quick. All I did was do steaks and roasts and um, got it all ready to go and did a little rub marinade, and we cooked up the backstrap last night. I told my wife to just definitely check the temperature, make sure it was at least 160 and yep. we had it for dinner last night. And, man, I was – you know, you hear the hype that, oh, cougar's so good. And then you have the other people that are like, what? You're going to eat a cat? Dude, uh-huh. that is such good meat. That's like uh, – I was telling my wife, I was like, I mean, that's top shelf. That, yep. that texture, the thickness of the cuts, the the color of the meat, it's just – it's not what you expect. It's It was almost mind-blowing. It wasn't like chicken. It was like biting into a real steak, but the steaks – it was like a – a super lean pork loin, if yep. you will. Yep, it's very healthy. It doesn't get any much much more healthy than that. It's pure protein, pure protein in that. So it's definitely it's definitely good for you. That's for sure. That's what you're. That's what people are supposed to be eating. That's what people ate, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And that's why people lips, you know, were in always in good shape and could do things they do. And I think 
the stuff that people eat nowadays is what causes people to be in, you know, diabetes and all the health problems and all that stuff, you know. But pure wild game game diet, like, you know, what I live off of and stuff, I'm always and I never get sick. And I guess I'm in pretty good shape if I can, you know, beat guys like you around that um, are always working out and all that stuff. But I guess all I do is hike. So I guess that's probably why I can, you know, hike the way I do. You're a hiking fool. I loved it, man. I loved hanging out with you. I <laughs> Dude, I just liked your personality the second I met you. I knew you were the real deal, and, and I'm pretty unfiltered. I would have told you if I didn't like you right away. I would have drove <laughs> home. You were awesome to be with. And for those that listening, man, I, I, I had to bring on Mike because I wanted people to know the backstory, how I was able to accomplish that with your help. And, and I wanted people that were interested to, hey, maybe this is something you want to do. Start saving up now. I talk about discipline and delayed gratification this is one of those deals where do your part, help keep our predators in check, keep Mike in business. He's got unbelievable amounts of expenses when it comes to gas for his truck and his sleds and to feed those dogs and pay his bills and do his – I mean, man, so the money's going to a good cause. Uh, I would strongly encourage you guys to do that hunt with him if that's something that's on your bucket list. But if not, hopefully you learn some stuff about not only cougar biology but bears – and a little bit of elk tips to keep everything kind of dialed. But, man, you're, you're a blue-collar guy. You're our kind of people. So I'm going to follow you around with the camera next winter just to, you know, just to, to capture. It is, it's just so cool to be a part of that experience. It's fun to see mountain lions up close and to watch the dogs work. And, honestly, I love any time I can spend in the mountains, especially in the winter when most people are stuck indoors and you're out crossing creeks and going up, you know, big old steep canyons chasing cats dude it's the best putting your fitness to use it's a great workout so you're good people man thanks for coming on and um we'll probably bring on next year and hear about some uh, more cat stories heck yeah man anytime cool we'll sign off here and uh you and i can catch up hang tight okay yep sounds good